But basically, we like got lost, ended up at this injury ceremony, which was super cool. They invited us in. We were like, might get murdered and sacrificed, or that'll be the best day ever. That was like one of those opportunities. We were the only foreigner there, and it was this really epic moment. But then after that, it got dark, and we knew that that was the risk, but we're willing to take it. This time, I sit down for the third time with my insanely intelligent, talented, and beautiful girlfriend, Dr. Julie LeBeau. Dr. LeBeau, and I get punished if I don't call her that. There's whips and ice cubes involved. It's a whole thing. Anyway, Dr. LeBeau grew up in France, and she received her PhD in neuroscience from a joint program split between Maastricht and Yale University. She is currently studying mosquitoes under the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama. She is the most adventurous person I know, so much so that it's rubbed off on me, and by the end of 2023, I will have spent more time working remotely from Panama than in New York, where I'm Based. Together, we've gone skydiving over the Grand Canyon, explored the jungles of Colombia, watched sumos fight in Tokyo, and that barely scratches the surface. If you're a regular listener of the podcast, you might be thinking, Zach, you're such a big routine guy. How do you balance work, podcasting, and life with all that traveling? It's true. I love routine. I'm a big routine guy, and I always will be. I love getting up, meditating, planning out my day on paper, executing that plan as best as I can, and sipping whiskey as a reward. One of the things I love about Julie, I mean Dr. LeBeau, is that she shakes me out of the routine and shows me a way to live outside the boundaries of the norm. She's taught in China, done research in Australia, climbed volcanoes in Indonesia, and has been trekking the globe away from her home in France since high school. That sort of lifestyle makes me uncomfortable and it's also made me grow in ways that I couldn't have otherwise if I just stuck to the routine. You also may be thinking, Zach, I want to break out of my routine, but I don't have a smoking hot French neuroscientist girlfriend. What do I do? Well, you can do one of two things. One, rob a bank right now. Don't think, just get in your car and go. You can pick up a Red Bull and an AR-15 on the drive over. If for some reason that's too high risk for your taste, you can also break out of your routine by checking out Auxoro Premium. On Auxoro Premium, I post bonus episodes of the podcast outside the routine of normal episodes. Instead of chatting with regular guests, I explore life through podcasting in different ways. For example, on one episode, I spoke with my brother Dave about the experience of watching Oppenheimer and why we thought we were going to die in the theater. On another episode, I reacted to a debate between Destiny and Milo Yiannopoulos. Anything can happen on Auxoro Premium. I don't think I'll ever murder somebody, but if I do, I'll talk about what it was like only on Auxoro Premium. Head to auxoro.supercast.com today for bonus episodes, subscriber-only AMAs where you can ask me anything, the ability to become part of the show, and more. The back catalog of episodes grows every month, and head to auxoro.supercast.com today to take advantage. Also, if you choose not to support the podcast financially, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a rating and comment on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. The amount that ratings help the show grow cannot be overstated. Every time you rate the podcast, you tell the algorithm to show the pod to more people and we appear higher in searches. Ratings are a super direct and impactful way for you to get involved. And listen, I'm not one of those hosts who's going to tell you to rate us five stars. Screw that. 
Give me an honest rating. Spit in my mouth if you want to. I'm all for some podcast kink. That is my BDSM. All I do is put out the episodes. You're the one who gets to decide what they mean. And you can't do that without leaving a rating. Tell me what you think. Give it to me hard. And thank you for however you choose to support. Now, without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging, deep-diving conversation with my smoking hot scientist girlfriend, Dr. Julie LeBeau. Hello, testing one, two, one. Okay, that's good. Am I scared of clowns? <laughs> the fly is a paid actor. <laughs> we have a bunch of flies. We're staying in an apartment in Chitre, Panama right now. And I don't have enough listeners yet to worry about someone tracking this exact location and down, tracking this exact location down and coming to murder me. What are you mouthing? <laughs> we started. The start is the start of a podcast is a fluid thing, much like my identity. Sometimes <laughs> like I feel like a little action. girl. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like a little girl. Sometimes I feel like a man. Other days I go in and out. And the start of a podcast is very fluid and will talk. And then when I go back and listen to it, it reveals itself. I go and I I, I listen to the episode and I say, this is a good starting point. This is a good ending point. This feels right. And I don't always know what it's going to be at the start. Mm. Sorry, I cut you. You were talking about your fear of clowns. You asked me <laughs> if I was afraid of clowns. I. You strike me as someone who would. I'm not afraid of clowns, but I find them extremely creepy. <laughs> and, and creepiness and fear are two different things. I can tolerate creepy. I can be around a creepy person like a clown yeah. but not feel actively afraid whereas a serial killer or vampire so, something else that i would be afraid of that strikes yeah. the, the the feeling in me of i need to escape i, I don't was, feel like i need to escape i was going to say if i was gonna get murdered i would like it not to be by a clown what, that would be it, my is, choice. <laughs> what is making you feel that way? What, well, what is it about like, a clown? It's just like it's already traumatic enough to get murdered that I feel like if it was by a clown, it would be like really extra scary. If you were to get murdered by a clown, though, mm. you would be fueling the guy who killed you in the clown costume or girl, this is 2023. We That's can have true. female serial killers too. That's true. Girls are saying they can do they everything are. that guys can, and they can also be serial killers. You know, there are famous female serial killers. They already are out there. There are, which begs the question, are there just as many female serial killers as guys, or are females are just, just better, better at not getting not caught? Getting caught? <laughs> like guys have that thing where they go, I want to fucking murder 63 people, and then I'm going to keep a notebook of teeth from each right. of my victims and then all, uh, eventually they leave it in a motel six and someone discovers a notebook filled with molars and they're like i think some this guy's a serial right. killer whereas i feel like girls like they just kind of murder a dude wipe their hands from it they psychologically in the moment that they, they want it to be an extremely painful experience for that dude like the dude has done something wrong to them it's not random i think but it's then a they're just like it's too. done i think it's a pride thing too where it's just like Catch me if you can. And they think they are so great that they're like, I'm going to leave little things behind just to like tease them being like, oh, you'll never catch me. And then they get caught because they leave those dumb shit behind. That's my theory. 
if you if you were a serial killer, let's say there's mm. there's a an alternate reality right. where there's no consequences because everyone is made up, but only you know that it's a simulation. So you're in a simulation okay. and you know it's a simulation. And if you kill someone in that simulation, you're just killing a simulated person. It's not okay. like you're not going to be charged with that. If you were to be in a world that was a copy of this world, but a total simulation, and let's assume that this world isn't a simulation right. because some people think it is. Of course they do. If you were trying to get away with being a successful serial killer in the simulated world, what are some of the tactics and things that you would do to evade the common mistakes that we often see in serial killer documentaries well i like to thank you for asking me these questions because it turns out i do think about this a lot how i would get that's very, that's murder. not concerning at all <laughs> being in a relationship with someone who their top four google searches are oh how do you mistake burn a body? number one do not google search it there you go this is this is all the google searching i'm doing ask jeeves yahoo duck duck go um okay no first of all i'd like to to ask you um, what is my motive? Why would I be killing, even if they're not real people, why would I be killing them to figure out whether they're real? You have been, let's say, in order to give you a motive, mm. you have been given a list of people that okay. have done extremely terrible things. Right. Where if they got murdered, no one would really feel bad. And in order for you to escape the simulated reality and go back to the reality with your family, friends, me, and, and person, because I'm also in the simulated reality, but it's not really me. Mm -hmm. It's just a version of me. In order to get back to reality, reality okay. you have to kill 50 people on that list mm -hmm. in no particular order. In under a year right and make it back without getting caught by the simulated police what are some of the ways because you've said you've thought okay. about this oh, okay well i haven't thought about serial killing but just kind of like how to because in every thriller in every police movie it's always so the one thing i've learned from watching police tv shows and shit it's um if there's nobody there is no crime so and the main thing that seems to be catching on to people is what they do with the body. So rather than the murderer's act, it's how you leave no trace, especially of that body. That mm. is a trick. And they've tried a lot of different things. As a scientist, I thought, you know, what chemical could I use that would like potentially disintegrate, disintegrate especially DNA and leave like no trace of that person. Mm. So I've thought about something like that, but then it's like, where would you do that? Because you, we've all seen, you know, that episode of Breaking Bad when he pours acid and like, then it makes a hole in the bathtub and yeah. like, not a good idea. Um, so like, I don't know. I have unfortunately not come up with the perfect way to get rid of a body, but I do think about it. But I guess, you know, chemicals, the thing would be to break down DNA so that there is no more DNA. Yeah. I mean, that, that's something that always amazes me. The, the fact that people are still 
digging shallow graves and mm. leaving bodies in there, driving 20 miles outside of their town, digging a shallow right. grave, leaving the body and going, phew, like, thank oh, God. God I'm good now. The, that guy's right. two feet under the dirt. There's no way a dog is going to sniff out that rotting mm-hmm. body. Yeah. Like, how, how do you not just watch Breaking Bad or just see all of these things where people do get caught and go, all right. Like, th- this is where I think serial killers and life coaches and self-help people can come together. There needs to be like a life coach for serial killers <laughs> because serial killers don't seem to plan ahead. They don't seem to invest in the actual plan. And something that self-help people yeah. constantly preach is like, have a plan. You can't just have false confidence that's not based on anything. You ha- you have to make make a a system in which you're going to follow and hold yourself accountable. Mm-hmm. And no matter how you're feeling that day, you wake up and do it. And then you also mix in some self-care. So if you're a serial killer that connects with a life coach, I would imagine that life coach would say, make a plan, buy the acid, get the barrels so you don't put a hole in the bathtub. But then also it's going to take multiple days. So also book a sauna nearby, go to the gym, make sure you're going on morning walks as the body is disintegrating because you don't want to have too much stress as the, as the serial killer themselves. So that, that's why I think there's an open space in the life coach community for serial killers. Yeah, but how do you think that would work out to be connected to someone where you're like clearly saying like, well, I would very much like to commit a bunch of murders. Can you help me out? And then connect that person to the police. Like, I feel like number one rule of committing murders is don't tell anyone you're making murders. You, that's a good point. I would say patient killer confidentiality or whatever therapist killer confidentiality doctor whatever that thing is as a life coach if you're going to be good if you want repeat customers if you want that serial killer to go out and tell all of their serial killer friends hey come to laura she's gonna respect your privacy she's not gonna go gossip behind your back you know and call the police and go oh i just talked to this guy and he said he buried three bodies in dallas no you want you want a woman or a man as a mm-hmm. life coach who's going or to listen non-binary. to your problems without judging. Okay, or ew, non-binary. Or yeah. getting canceled. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> non-binary serial killing or life coaches. Or anyone other than men and women. But um, I don't know if like patient confidentiality doesn't have limits. So like if you are harming others does that still cover it? So like if you're a psychiatrist let's say and you, you do... Uh, for instance, work with people that are really um, mentally challenged in the sense that, like, you know, maybe they have psychosis and stuff and they confess to a murder. Does that still... And, like, and they seem like they still want to kill. Most extreme case. Mm. Um, Do you still respect patient confidentiality? I can't say that word, confidentiality. Or do you... Do you speak to the police about that being like, well, I have a patient that seems like they might be murdering I people. think I just thought of a workaround. Oh, what is it? So if you suspect someone is going to uh, going to admit a crime mm-hmm. and you're the therapist, life coach, right. and you suspect that your, I guess, patient, I don't even know what you, your, your client's going to admit to something, you go 
as the therapist, I suspect that you want to get something off your chest, but you don't want to force my hand into having to let the authorities know we're going to play a game where you're going to play a character who does things that you want to talk about. And I'm going to play a character as a therapist where I'm giving you advice about your character. So we're both playing characters. And then from that point on, you can say to the police that this was just a living art piece like Shia LaBeouf when he goes and watches his own movies with a bag on his face or Kanye West, you know, fucking just being some sort of hybrid mentally ill live performer where he just does outlandish things. And then he says he's like his whole life is art. He's just a living art piece. You there's no reason why you can't do that as a therapist. You can be an artist. You're not just therapizing. You're artisizing. Yeah, you kind of lost me there, but where, where where did I lose you? I don't know. You started talking about Kanye West and role playing, and I got confused there. So, I think a lot of artists, mm. and and Kanye West is obviously a controversial example, but a lot of artists view their life as art, mm-hmm. and that's usually something that is held for people in the stereotypical creative spaces, like musicians actors where it's like their entire life is viewed as an art piece not just the work itself but i think you can extend that to other careers Mm -hmm. whereas a therapist you can say all right i'm going to get into character okay to play a part and the person my patient is also going to play a part and with that loophole we are making art we're not confessing to a crime or i'm not a uh what what's the word for it? Like I, I'm not an accomplice, and this person is not confessing. We are coming together to make an art piece. Where I'm still advising the person, I'm still giving true advice, but I'm not breaking the boundaries of the, what would be illegal. But you're breaking another boundary because, like, that's the whole thing. It's like patient psychiatrists have a relationship. That's like that's that relationship, and then it's another breach if you beginning a relationship outside of our, whether that's a friendship, situationship, really romantic relationship, where you are breaking that relationship as patient and doctor. Mm. And and so I don't think looking for a loophole outside of that. Plus it's like, ultimately, you kind of have to weigh out the cost and benefit, you know? And if like you are advi- like therapizing someone that is actually dangerous to others or to themselves. It is, especially if you're a psychiatrist and therefore a medical doctor, it is your duty to think about the health of themselves and others. So I think the loophole is just, I actually don't know, but like I feel like if someone is dangerous, you need to do something about it. Otherwise you're breaking another um, vow that you've made to the community. Sure, yeah. I. I a a typical therapist would be obligated to go to the authorities Mm -hmm. if someone confessed something in a therapy session that they were convinced was going to happen or maybe the person was in the middle of committing a slew of crimes but if you're in the serial killing life coaching business to begin with it's safe to say that you have some flexible morals so that that was just like me giving advice to any life coaches out there who 
have an interest in working with serial killers that need a workaround to, yeah. in order to have a session without being legally culpable. Yeah. Because that's what this podcast is all about, helping people get away with murder. I don't think that this can't be a true crime podcast. Why not? Let's let's start let's start breaking boundaries. What I found really weird and um I forget the exact word, but like it's like defense attorney where you have your client that has admitted to you to the murders and let's say like take the worst case scenario possible. It's like the serial killer that's committed like 20 killings admitted to you that and you're finding ways to defend them and get them out. Like I'm like, this is so crazy. Like I totally get how maybe deaf as an attorney get into that because they're like, want to defend people that are like wrongly accused or something. But like when you have to defend an actual serial killer that tells you, yes, I've done it. And maybe even I liked it. And you're like, cool, gotcha. Now on to defending them. Yeah, I don't know. In in the case of the the serial killer or the murder, I don't know if it actually gets to the point where they confess to the crime. I think there are workarounds where the lawyer will say, I don't want to hear that or you, we can't discuss this right now because I'm defending you. I can't mm. in good faith defend you if you tell me something. So I think there are a lot of lawyers that just avoid having that conversation and instead they they, they try to get to the root of the crime as mm-hmm. much as possible without some sort of direct confession. I'm not sure because if they don't tell them everything, then they can get caught up like in the in court and be like, oh, there's this new element. And you're like, I didn't know about this. And the person would be like, well, if I told you about this, I'd have to tell you the whole truth. True. So but- I don't know if you can really defend someone if you only know part of the truth because you don't want to hear what the real story is. But I bet you... I, 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 that's true. I, I, at some point, if you're trying to defend someone of committing a crime, you're going to have to know the nitty gritty details of how it went down. And I think there is some sort of protection with lawyers where if someone confesses a crime to you, you don't have to go on the stand as a lawyer. Like the prosecuting attorney can't call the defense attorney to the stand and say, did your did your client ever confess a crime to you? Because mm-hmm. that would just be a total breach of confidentiality like you could you could never run a case like that but i will say if i was the type of guy who wanted to do things like that where i would defend someone and it didn't matter whether they did the murder or not i think it would be a huge adrenaline rush Mm. to walk out of like the uh what's his name johnny cochran the dude who defended oj simpson oh he had a whole legal team but it's like it's like i'm such a good lawyer that you can murder someone and I will still get you off. Yeah. In terms of the Facebook ads that you could run after getting someone off. Like, I literally, like, this guy mm-hmm. killed five people and now he just bought a $5 million mansion in Florida because he did a fly just land on my forehead. <laughs> I felt I felt a tickle. <laughs> See, like, that, that I, I feel like <laughs> talking about death where we're I'm kind of talking about death in like a joking way. The Reaper is coming for me. And the, he's like, oh, you want to dance with death? You, you already started the composition. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, th- I think there's also an adrenaline rush where as a def- you're like, I don't even fucking care if you did it as a defense attorney. I'm going to get you out of it. That's how good I yeah, am. Yeah, but that's so fucked up. Like, it's just like when that moment happened, you're like, yeah, I've truly lost all of my humanity. 
I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm saying I think it, it feels it makes you feel super powerful, which is why guys like Johnny Cochran take the defense cases They're, of O.J. Simpson or yeah. the the defense attorneys that like, let's say a uh, the government sues Coca-Cola for polluting a bunch of rivers and dumping a bunch of toxins into the ocean. The defense attorney that defends Coca-Cola and is like, all right, bitches, come for me. I, I'm going to win this fucking $50 billion lawsuit. There's not shit you can do because I'm such a better lawyer. Like the corporate defense attorney, I feel like is in a similar vein of the, uh, the, the kind of like caught red-handed murder defense attorney. You're both defending people and companies that have done shitty things mm -hmm. no doubt and you know that you have mm -hmm. to know that but there's a power rush there's an adrenaline rush of seeing being like i don't care i'll get you off anyway like i'm bigger yeah. than the government i'm bigger yeah. than the justice system i mean like yeah power and money always comes back to that ultimately because that's the thing is like those companies are doing these kind of things they're like the only thing about the power and money and if you're willing to defend them then that's all you care about too yeah and, I, I and fame maybe because yeah when you get onto these like really big cases serial killers often make the news they're often televised um televised um court sessions and so it's like cool i get fame money power great so you're a trash human person but hey you're famous now are you trash though if you're living in a society that values that <sighs> the whole society is trash this is my mom my my job moment just screw screw everything <laughs> and i mean i feel like that's the men the go-to mentality is if the world's burning and you can't stop society and the environment from going in a certain direction just but drink whiskey and let it burn but you can that's, you could that's... smoke a cig drink some whiskey do a line let it burn and just have fun as we're no. rolling into a ball of fire through the universe that is the issue it's like a lot of these issues are very solvable if only people with the money and the power could decide to just give up a little bit of that. Just not even all of it, just a little bit. But all they think about is how can I actually get bigger and bigger and bigger, no matter how that's impacting the environment, no matter how that's impacting people's lives. Like we live in a society where you do have like defense attorney that are like really absurdly rich and famous for defending the worst crappiest human beings or companies on the planet while attorneys with the same education with the same power court that actually try to defend human rights and environment that do environmental law are i paid nothing they re, they struggle and and that's true for any humanitarian vocation it's if you want to make money if you want to survive in this world you have to walk the nasty line and if you try to actually help the planet, help people, then you're going to struggle your entire life doing that. Well, I, we have the answer to climate change. Yeah. It, it's nuclear power. Well, that's one. That is the main answer. The, like, no, it's, it's like just stop cutting trees and plant more. And truly, that's, that's all we freaking well, need. Well, sure. Th that will have a certain effect doing things like that but in terms of a knockout punch to climate change this this i've i've spoken to multiple people about this that are in nuclear science or uh sort of just like following the nuclear development of 
bringing us over to the nuclear power sources. Mm -hmm. And we've known this for over 50 years, which is if you want to power the entire world on something else besides fossil fuels, yeah, it's not going to be wind. It's yeah. not going to be solar. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be getting rid of cow farts. Yeah. It's getting planting more trees is part of it. But like yeah. if you want a one to one fossil fuels sure. to something else to completely sure. replace it, nuclear power is a thing. But I feel yeah. like environmentalists, a lot of them have become so overrun with the trendiness of trying to power the entire state of California on wind. And then they have rolling blackouts and they're like, well, mm -hmm. you just can't use your AC this summer instead mm -hmm. of just instead of going with the unpopular uh, unpopular fiery reality of using nuclear power, even though it's had a bit of a controversial past, the risks are super, super, super small in comparison to the yeah. benefit. And I know that that's a huge tangent from what we were just talking about, but that I feel like the all or nothing mentality on both sides prevents us from actually coming to a solution, which is like, how about we have some fossil fuels while the transition is happening mm -hmm. and we also have some solar and some wind while we're going on to nuclear power mm -hmm. you can't have a campaign against using all fossil fuels because the world will literally just stop mm -hmm. running altogether like the thing that people hate is the thing that we need in order to help the transition into a more environmentally uh environmentally uh, what do you like sustainable mm -hmm. future and as a podcaster as, as you know as an expert in reading headlines and then extrapolating the answers to problems that is something that I'm willing to say in front of the environmental tribunal of the world yeah I mean I mean I also think so there's definitely an aspect where it's like we need to stop using fossil fuel and if nuclear is better than then I don't know enough about it to really take a stand on that but like I do know that fossil fuels are tarnishing our world and will be the end of us very soon if we don't figure a better way to live and I also think that we kind of need to and that's way harder we kind of need to change the culture in particular in the west we have this culture of hyper everything we're overworking we're overbuying things we're overdoing everything and we need to like be able to slow down and go back to a slower way of life where we don't need to work as much to we can like prof like enjoy our life better we don't need to buy constantly we need to like be able to use closing for a longer period of time and buying reused stuff and re and like just having this cycle same with like furniture and just find a way to like kind of like slow down and but at the same time changing people's ways is way harder than um than just changing the way that we're doing like keeping the way we're doing things just changing the source of energy um but i do think that it's helpful for people to just try to to balance life a bit better and yeah not just consume constantly not let capitalism but consuming feels so good when i slice into a butcher box burger that i didn't have to slaughter the animal myself and i just get it in a vacuum sealed package and put it on the stove to me that is the greatest thing in the world i love 
buying clothes, buying meat. Capitalism has sunk its veins deep into me. I'm willing to make some concessions, but it's so convenient. Like we're in Panama now and the minimum I could get a package is like two weeks from Mm -hmm. another country. Whereas now in New York, sometimes I'll press a button and Amazon delivers it two hours later. So I feel like I'm so... I feel like people have gotten yes. so used to it where it's like taking a step back would feel so drastic. But you are now and like you're surviving. And I'm dying and- every day. Oh, stop it. But at the Slowly. same time, I also feel like, don't get me wrong. I'm also like, Amazon is so handy that I can like, I need this thing. Now I've got to go to stores. I have to figure out which store to go to. And luckily we have a car now, but it's like, I have to go to like a mall and figure out which shops might sell what I'm looking for. But at the same time, because it does add to effort, I'm like, do I really need this thing? And when it's just at the click of a button, you're just like so willing to just spend so much money. I feel like we've already saved so much money that we're able to put in experiences and actually enjoying our time here rather than just like buying random shit that like you'll use twice and then be like, whatever. I think I just solved climate change (laughs) based on what we were saying. Oh, So we have serial killers as a resource, there's thousands, hundreds, possibly thousands of them just in the U.S. active at any one time. Right. Kill the fossil fuel giants. They're, well, that's that could be part of it. But they're traveling around. They do a lot of moving because mm-hmm. they're trying to throw people off the scent. We hire them as Amazon drivers. Right. And we... We say, we'll let you keep going, do whatever you want. It's not our business, you know, how many people go missing in Albuquerque. We just need you to deliver these packages here. So they get the packages. But at the same time, since we've relaxed the laws around serial killing, it's helping with the overpopulation. So therefore, we don't even have to change the consumption of resources because they take care of us for mm-hmm. that. They, they, they sort of just like when you have a teaspoon of sugar mm-hmm. and you have a little too much, so you take a knife and you comb the extra into the sink. Mm-hmm. Serial killers are like the comb of society. And then we can also put them to work to deliver the packages. Boom. Climate change solved. Overpopulation solved. Mm-hmm. I get my microphone on the podcast in two hours still from Amazon and I don't have to wait two weeks for it to get there ethically. How does that sound? Crazy. I mean, that's what they said about Oppenheimer. <laughs> they told that seriously that I, when I was watching it in IMAX with my brother, they called him crazy, and I was like, "Us, us both, us both." Yeah, ask Japan how they feel about it. Ask the people. Um, they, I'm guessing they probably feel pretty pretty heated. Has the people um, who had to move house because they were testing the bomb how they how they felt about it? Probably, I'm guessing, pretty heated from the radiation. Yeah, no, I I got the the joke there that you just did. But I did, I do I did. Uh, yeah, I I don't know that. I thought a lot of things when I was watching Oppenheimer <laughs> that we could get into. I'm just decaying in real time on the podcast. There are flies. There are flies eating my flesh. I think this is a serial killer fly. It's trying to just fucking inject me with whatever it's like, bacteria. Have you seen this video of like, have you seen, um, like it's like this weird thing, like killing with a spoon and he's just like trying to kill someone with a spoon. It just takes forever. And I feel like that fly is trying to do that to you, just like eat you off 
but it's taking a really yeah. long time. Death by a thousand cuts is like death by a million flypecks. I think it'd take more than a million. We'll see. I mean, if we record long enough, we could yeah. get we could use this as data for. I'll, a, I'll go take a break, and then it'll just be like a skeleton standing. Oh. Yeah. So, th- this is perfect. How we're talking about the the world coming to an end. Cool. Yeah. Because I think we're both on the same page, which is whatever happens in the world. Whether it burns to a crisp by the time we're 75, which I don't believe, but you know, that's what a lot of people say. Or it's around for billions more years because it's been here billions of years before. The earth will be here. I think that's like a big misconception that people don't understand. It's humans, like the earth, humans. Right. Humans. The earth will survive us. What I think is important is that no matter what happens, we continue to be tourists within the disaster disaster tourism we're going around the earth and whether california is on fire or it's like it is now we're still trying to go on adventures we're still trying to explore we're still going to see the places we want to see it just depends you know the state of those places i'm still going to go back to you know new york to see my parents Mm. I, i i may be staying in an underwater apartment at some point when i go see them but it's not going to change the tourism aspect. We, we we're both adventurous. We both have an adventurous spirit. That's one of the things that I that I love about you. And I want to get into <laughs> some of your adventures. This is the weirdest transition ever. <laughs> Since it's we're not, talking about the end of the world, let's talk about how we like to visit it. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm saying. I'm. Are you not going to go to Abu Dhabi or Australia? Or Croatia, Greece, Brazil, it just because the world's ending? No, we're going to say fuck it and we're just going to go right into the eye of the storm. Probably literally as they're super hurricanes just engulfing the earth. Mm-hmm. Transition over. Now, I want to get into your adventures. And I know you've been on many of them, especially before that we before we met. And how how do you want to enter into the adventurous journey of your life? Where do you think would be a good place to start? Um, well, my dad is very adventurous too. And so he's taken me on loads of adventures since I was a kid. And I grew up in the French countryside, surrounded by nature. So there was always a ton to do. Um, my dad is part of the, um, Bank of France, um, Speleology Society, Mm. which is a, um, really aging society that has had, he's been part of it since he was like 16 or 17 years old. And he's Mm. now, um, I might say a mistake, but like 63 and he's still caving. Yeah. And that's speleology, which I had no idea what that was until I heard you talk about it. Right. So that's that's, caving. That's caving. That's like the technical name. Exploring caves. Um, and you know, uh, he does a lot of canyoning, via ferrata. Um, he like mountain bikes every weekend. Um, so it, He's definitely a very outdoorsy person and and he's taken me and my brother on adventures. Like I remember climbing my first wall when I was probably 
eight years old. I went skiing when I was able to stand on both legs. <laughs> like I think I was mm, 13, three or four oh, when, three or four, okay. when I started skiing. So um, I've been doing a lot of outdoorsy stuff thanks to my dad mostly. And uh, so I think I kind of got the bug there, but I didn't quite realize I had the bug until later in my life and um and there's I've, also a bug right by yeah, your face too yeah so yeah. you have both uh, i guess i'm decaying too now yeah um i went to the uk for my undergrad um that was i think yeah i traveled a bit outside of the country but that's really when it all started i was my first time taking a plane i flew there and um, after that, I just never really stopped. And I just, I, I do go home to visit my parents, but I never really went home. I never moved back to France after that. And that was um, 11 years ago. So what was the first adventurous experience where you felt like I'm in the shit? Like this is intense. This is, whether it's a, a hike or dive or some sort of experience where like it wasn't just going skiing or caving with your dad it was right. i'm doing this alone or maybe with a couple friends but th th this is more than just a father-daughter trip this right. is like if shit goes wrong there might be some alarming scary moments so um that i can recall um when i was with my first boyfriend i think at the time i was 17 and i've had a few things like that but um that one was like a big trip that was like first big big trip and i think yeah i was 17 and we took a train from um a southern city southern ish city toulouse um down to the coast uh at the edge of the pyrenees and we backpacked through the pyrenees that was the first time I'd ever gone backpacking into the mountains. Um, I barely left home at the time. I was 17. I was still in high school. And we had like, oh, her bags were way too heavy. We packed a bunch of cans. I've since learned how to like backpack properly so that you don't have like 20 kilos on your back. We're backpacking through the mountains, got lost a bunch of times. Eventually we got to Spain. We started hitchhiking in different places got to Barcelona we had no money we ran out completely out of money he wanted to keep on going and I was like how are we gonna do that when not you a huge fight I was like I need to go home but like eventually like things worked out in the end but like that was a bit of a shit show where um I'd never done this before he probably didn't or had very little knowledge and and so like things could have ended up a lot worse but that kind of was a scary thing where Got lost in the mountains, ran out of money um, in a foreign country where we didn't really speak the language. And so that was um, definitely something to learn from. So what does it feel like going backpacking for the first time? Because I had never done I, I still wouldn't say I've done proper backpacking because really the only time I've ever done it was when we were in the Adirondacks. Yeah. When we did that overnight thing. What does it feel like to do something long term like that? And can you describe exactly what types of things you're carrying? Because when I heard the term backpacking, I would just think, 
oh, you're like, you're literally, Europe. yeah, like yeah. I'm backpacking through Europe. I'm yeah. just carrying things. Yeah. And it's, it's not that difficult. And you're, you have a bag with some pencils and some oatmeal <laughs> and, you know, you a couple pencil? condoms if you're single mm. and because oh, hostels get, what hostels get wild, oh, you know, back, oh, in that sense. Yeah. What, like, what, what is the the uh like what what does backpacking consist of and what does it feel like to be mm. doing that because i feel like a lot of people who haven't done it like uh myself before mm-hmm. a couple of years ago have a distorted view of what it actually is right well so yeah backpacking i've done that too where you're like essentially don't instead of having a suitcase you have a big backpack full of clothes and you just travel from one country to the next or anything just by buses you can fly to but basically you have your entire life in a backpack and you backpack through that's what most people think about when you're like i've been backpacking through southeast asia backpacking through europe and we can get to that too but backpacking in the mountains entail you know similar idea where you have just a backpack filled with all the things that you need to survive in the wilderness over however long you're backpacking for uh essentially it's like a through hike or like I mean, it can be an out and back, but you're gone for several days into the mountain. I mean, it doesn't have to be the mountains, but often it's the mountains. You said it was about 20 kilos on your back, so it's about 45 pounds. Well, no, pounds. this is when you – well, it can be. That depends how long you're gone. Like, we definitely messed it up, and now I know how to backpack more efficiently. But, like, that's the thing is you're going to carry a backpack for several days, often for, like, you're hiking each day, eight hours a day. So, like, every gram – even if at the time you're packing doesn't feel like much, it will feel like a lot over several hours. So you really need to be really mindful on what's vital, what's not, and what quantities am I bringing. Backups in case you do get lost or if something happened. Um, and and just really... So it's like a perfect balance of like, I don't want to overpack, but I also don't want to underpack instead in case something happens. Yeah. That's something I didn't realize when we went backpacking in the Adirondacks is how heavy your bag feels yeah. 30 minutes from putting it on to two hours, putting mm-hmm. it on to having it on for six hours. Yeah. I just kind of felt my bag and was like, Oh yeah, this is fine. Mm-hmm. And then four hours into it. Yeah. I was, you know, we'd stop to get water and I'd pull shit out of my bag and I'm like, I'm not going to fucking touch this for the entire two days. I don't even know why I brought there. There were probably, four or five things that I put Mm -hmm. in my bag that I didn't touch the entire time we were there. Right. No, exactly. Plus, it's like, you know, you're going to be disgusting. Like, if there's a body of water that you can bathe in or something, that's great. But, like, otherwise, you know, like, you don't, you won't mind wearing the same thing. And And I've actually noticed something very similar when I'm, the actual backpacking through countries is that you're like, oh, maybe this is cute. I could wear this. And... Ultimately, when you're actually backpacking, it's like whatever is not dirty and is on top of my bag is what I'm going to wear. So, yeah. So you you backpack through the Pyrenees. Mm-hmm. You start in France. You start in France. You end up in Spain. Yeah. And then you have the option to keep going. Mm-hmm. Why did you not want to keep going? So, like I mentioned, we had no money left like nothing where i was 
a high school student. He was like early in university. We had no more money. We are in a city. We can't just like camp anywhere. There are laws. And um, we were not prepared. Like that was, this whole experience was not a fun memory necessarily for me. And I've learned a lot since and how not to do things. Um, but we were at a state where it's like, Either we sleep outside with the homeless people or we have to use a little bit we have left to actually get a train ticket back home. And I had to be the responsible person and put my foot down. And like, I think for any type of trip, you need to also think what's the responsible thing to do. And if you're like hiking in the mountains and there's a big storm coming up, you have to realize also like, especially in nature, that the elements will are stronger than you and um you know you need to make that decision to to head back in that case and but you know like what was the big crowd that went down was in the city um but like shit can happen anywhere. what do you mean big crap in the city well like as in like the crisis of whether to yeah, go the cra- forward the, or the, back the main crisis that we had on that trip was like towards the end of it like in the mountains we did get like lost a little bit but like it was during the day no big catastrophe happened this could have ended up very different and it was in the summer so there's not it's not like when you're hiking in the winter like when i did that by myself in the adirondacks my big fear was if i get lost and it gets late I if I I can't sleep outside. It, there's snow everywhere. I will die. So in the summer you don't like you get longer days, so you have more time to find your way, and you're less likely to die. Plus mm. we had like you know a tent, sleeping bags, and everything, so we were gonna be fine. There's a guy Wim Hof mm-hmm. who runs marathons in the Arctic Circle barefoot mm-hmm. without yeah. any clothes. That's crazy. And he does regulated breathing Mm -hmm. where he regulates his internal body temperature to not drop despite the fact that he's literally surrounded by arctic temperatures Mm -hmm. did you ever think about teaching yourself that the same day so that you could sleep outside while you're in spain and you could just be homeless and it wouldn't be a problem with the weather did you ever think about taking a wim hof course I mean, if it really came to it, you know, I would have probably survived. But at the time I was like, I want to go home. This is not fun. <laughs> and I mean, I've had, luckily, I've I've been well prepared enough that I've not really had many challenges in the wilderness. Um, except when we did go backpacking mm. and we run out of uh, water filtering pills. Um, but, it, you know. Was when was that? What do you mean? When was that? That was with you. Oh yeah, it was just—it was just such not a big deal to me that we ran out of water. That oh my I, god, I forgot, he would I not forgot. shut up about it. What are you talking about? You're like, oh, I'm so dehydrated. I didn't have my two gallons of water to start my day. How am I going to survive? Well, okay, so when you have guys like me and Wim Hof who are pushing our bodies to the limit, we need a certain moisture in our bodies to regulate. It is important for me to have water during before and after i start my day because Mm -hmm. my body is such such an immaculate and powerful machine that i i it would be like trying to start a ferrari without proper oil you know what i'm saying so like in order for me to function i needed that water Mm -hmm. but i'm also able to adapt so when we ran out of water and we were hiking in the adirondacks i said let me 
just feel what it's like to be a normal person today. I, I don't need to tap in to my superpower capabilities. And so to me, it wasn't even, I was pretty chill about it, if you remember. Yeah, I, I remember a bit differently. But. What do you remember? Um, I remember, <laughs> I remember you telling me that you considered murdering me in my sleep for not having water built <laughs> Is that real? I think you told me this, that you were like, I don't know if I can make it through the night. And I'm so pissed at you. Well, if I did say that, you could not break the therapist-patient confidentiality uh, by going to the authorities if I were to Well, I made that. it out. I made it out. But yeah, I... Did I really? I don't remember saying that. I, I, I remember. I remember being. Lines. I remember saying I was pissed off at you. You were dehydrated and... That was a bad side of Yeah, I, I was a Ferrari lurking around in the middle of the night looking for my oil. I was willing to do anything. I would have yeah. wrestled a bear. I was trying to suck water out of leaves. Yeah, I mean, the unfortunate thing as well was that there was, beyond the fact that we were low on this, the other thing was that like the... Um, and this is what this was an important lesson, which is when you get new material always double check it before you go out. And we had just bought this new propane thing and the the stove clipper was yeah. not matching. So we could not... We, we had the propane tank and right. the attachment wasn't the right Right, model. so it was an issue. Luckily, there were other people on our campsite, but like we couldn't um, just heat up a bunch of water necessarily. And the other problem was, and that's not on me, is that most of the hike the second day was on a, like it was high enough that there was no water running and so regardless of whether we could have had as much water as we wanted at the beginning of the day then we would have seen no water for hours anyway and you'd still have been dehydrated and a pain in my ass but yeah and we made it out we did yeah we did we were tested mm -hmm. and we got through yeah Here, here's something that you do a great job at that I don't possess the skill as much to be able to regulate in the moment. Mm -hmm. When we go hiking or specifically the camping and sleeping part, mm -hmm. when we start to go to bed and we're at a campsite where it's three or four people or sometimes we're at a campsite with dozens of people, mm -hmm. I start thinking in my head, statistically there are people in this campsite right now that have done some pretty terrible things or willing to do some terrible things like robbery or murder or some combination and the only thing that protects us from them is this zipper attached to a piece of cloth mm -hmm. that easily goes up and down and then me just falling asleep clutching the knife to my chest but not really being able to fall asleep because i'm just thinking about all the noises outside that's either an elk or human yeah. trying to break into our tent. How do you fall asleep semi-instantly when we go hiking or camping? Because you always it's fall easy. asleep pretty quick. Exhaustion. <laughs> well, I'm exhausted <laughs> no, too. No, but like, no, but seriously, um, I think that when I'm with you, or if I'm with someone, it doesn't freak me out as much. But when I was um, kayaking, for four days and while camping on my own, I was clenching that knife too. And I was like particularly terrified because I was like, if people see I'm a girl alone um, and I would, so when I was kayaking, I would often try to look for 
I would start looking for campsite at least an hour before sundown. And I would look for ideally an island on the river Mm. So that if you wanted to murder me, you'd have to like get a boat or swim across. Like it sounds like effort. And I feel like a lot of murderers are not like that keen on effort. And that I think is like a nice theory when you go hiking in the mountains, especially when you're like while camping and there's barely anyone else. It's like most murderers don't feel like putting that much of effort in. But I still Unless get- they're working with a life coach. Unless that murderer has been working with yeah. a life coach that tells them, look, you're going to have to put in some effort, some you use some discipline in the short term to experience better results long term. So they say, you know what, I'm going to put my body to the test and swim across this river to murder that person. Yeah, because I am a I, I, I'm self-responsible. I take account of my yeah. own actions. But if you talk but, about statistics, it says likely. But I will say that if I'm camping by myself, like especially at the beginning of the trip, like the first night or something like I'm also super scared and clenching to my knife and just trying not to think about it too hard. Yeah. Well, so something, a, a hack that I noticed helps and other people are free to use this as well. So I say, you know, I'll, I'll take the knife, I'll sleep with it, but then I make you sleep closest to the tent door mm-hmm. so that if someone were to break in, I would be woken up by the murder sounds of you before it gets to me. Mm-hmm. And so I would be able to handle the situation. You know, I, I, I'd feel like the blood spatter and the screams and I'd like wake up and I'd be like, oh, shit, I grab my knife and boom, ta 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 ta. And then I get out of the. T- so for those of you looking for a way to better protect yourself, uh, if you're with a partner, have them sleep closer to the door. And if you're single, date someone with the hopes that they will be willing to sleep closer to the, the tent door as well. So that, that's my that's my hack. If I was going to be a life coach. I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Yeah. Not to, to do this again with you. <laughs> I think I actually slept closer to the door. I think I was in the I think, I think Adirondacks the door, and in that, the, it's that the lake. It's the same thing. We're like, we're next to each other and then like the door is like this. So I think it doesn't matter. Mm. Well, I'm I'm also scared of animals too. Like it's people, you be. people kind of, but w- when we were in Vermont, even when we were in that what's that circular hut called yeah the yurt i thought every single (laughs) motion or shadow was a giant fucking elk that was just wait or a bear or something and i something about being at night with some lights on in a tent where the shadows are just Mm -hmm. cast giant a squirrel can look like a fucking bear if it's at the right angle so i i i don't know i just have a terrible time sleeping i enjoy the day part but when we go camping i always i oh it's like i wish i could just fast forward the sleeping when we're camping i feel kind of the same way i like everything about it except the sleeping part i like i like the 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 fire if we can make one the having dinner just enjoying the nature and the view and then the sunrise and breakfast when you wake up but yeah i also like, let's let's be honest, it's not a comfortable sleep. Like, even if no. you have an, an, a mattress, you often get freezing cold at some point during the night, if not completely. Um, so the night is never fun, yeah. camping. It's the, the one part. But, like, it it's enables you to do a lot of things. only if you have alcohol. If you're sober, setting up a small fire, like, taking 45 minutes and, like, praying to God that it lights, and you're eating burnt macaroni out of a tin pan... 
that is the worst experience ever. But then I feel like people get super fucked up when they go camping and they come back and they tell all their friends, oh, my God, it was such a good time. But in reality, anything you do drunk is fun. So I feel like that has to do with a lot of it is like having a good buzz for the nighttime of camping because otherwise it would be intolerable. Yeah. I don't know. I I really enjoy backpacking in the mountains. It enables you to see like true wilderness because I feel like hiking has now become such a popular thing. And I I do think it's great that people go out in nature and hopefully gets them to care more about the environment. Um, But when you go backpacking, you get to areas that only people who backpack can get to and you get Mm. really in true wilderness and in areas that you wouldn't be able to see if you didn't, unless you're like an incredible runner. Like I remember doing a backpacking trip with a friend in the White Mountains in New Hampshire. And it was amazing. It was one of my favorite trips we've ever done. It was so hard. Mm. I sprayed my ankle twice. Your favorite trip was the the White Mountains? Okay. Okay, Zach. Um, But we did a three-day loop. And it was really hard. And we had our backpacks on. And (laughs) we would see people runners doing the three-day loop in a day like they would start mm. crazy early like at 4 a.m and finish at 10 p.m but they would run the whole thing of course they're not carrying 10 kilo 15 kilo backpacks on their back but I'm, I'm just really amazed at people that can do this and i could definitely never do that that is why i'd like to offer my solution which is called bougie backpacking where oh, someone do- does it for you, you take a small backpack and uh, you walk 16 to 18 miles a day. Right. And then you pay someone to ship your main bag forward to the bed and breakfast that you sleep in that night that serves food and Guinness. Or you have the option of um, there's like a lot of places that do that. Some places you even have to where you have porters. So you have people that carry your food, the tent everything for you you just need to bring yourself and your little backpack for several days and all the heavy stuff someone else carries for you yeah like a camping slave i like that that's a good idea you have you have places like for instance when i went to the lost city in columbia Mm, south carolina columbia south carolina no columbia columbia the country okay in la sierra nevada Mm. they you cannot go there by yourself you need to go with a tour and the tour includes people that will i don't know if they actually i don't think they carried the stuff i think they're just kind of there but they need to get there maybe they go there by donkey either way but wait like, so you found the city <laughs> they, if they keep calling the lost city but it was they found. found it yes the city that's was false found. advertising the city i feel was like found. someone has to report the them. found lost city yeah um but you have you have like um I guess it's it's kind of like bougie camping, if you will. Well, they have like points along the route where they have put like bunk beds and stuff or hammocks and you just kind of like hike to that point. Mm. You sleep there. They cook your food and stuff, which is very nice. Okay. But, but like, for instance, here, I couldn't be, no, I don't want to do that. I'm just having my backpack with all my food and I'm just going to do my thing. They're like, no, you, you're not allowed. You need to be taken there by someone who's um authorized to take you there so okay but then you carry less on your back too yeah so after the pyrenees what was the next experience where you felt that you were really tested but 
maybe in a different way. So it wasn't like deciding how much money you had, whether or not you headed back, but it was weather or injuries or something where just like it was fucking difficult to get through and there were a lot of uncertainties about it. Well, there I've definitely had a few like this, like including that time when I talked about my backpacking trip in New Hampshire where I sprained my ankle and then I sprained it again. Well, like it really popped too. And yet I finished the hike. We still had like... Was this... This was after we met? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, wait. Or was it just before? I think that was just before that. I think that was September 2020. Okay. Um, But like I double sprained my ankle and I still finished the hike. And I think we had eight miles left with our backpacks and stuff. And my ankles were like fucked after this. So that was challenging in this way. But I think following that one of the times where... I mean, there's different challenges, but this in terms of difficulty when I did hike Rinjani, uh, which is the second highest volcano in Indonesia. And mm. it's almost 4,000 meters. And you kind of start almost uh, barely above sea level. And that's a three-day trek. And you start, it's boiling hot. It's, I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's probably 30 degrees Celsius. So I guess 90s in the 90s. That sounds Fahrenheit. like somewhere around 100, yeah. 100. And when you finish up, you're like absolutely freezing cold. And so the first day you hike to the rim of the volcano and that's already tough, but you know, you make it there. And then the following day is the summit day and you get up at 2 a.m. to make it for sunrise. And even though it's only two kilometers to the top, it is so steep and completely like just covered in ashes that it's like one step forward, two step back. You like falling backward as you're trying to So you forward. start at sunrise? You start You start at 2 a.m. 2 a.m. to so get there to sunrise. So you can make it around 6 a.m. Yeah, so it's four hours. Four hours to go basically a mile. Yeah, but That's it's like, insane. it's crazy steep, just ashes. So it's like one step forward, two step back. It's freezing cold. It's pitch black, dark. And you're on like the the edge, like it's just a thin edge. So it's like, if you go a little bit to the, to the left or too, too much to the right, you could fall to your death. So that's also super fun. So it's a little bit, so it's thin and steep. Yeah, exactly. So like, I mean, it's not crazy, like narrow, but it's like narrow enough that like if you go off to the wrong direction, I mean, you kind of follow all the people with the with the lights. Um, but it was really, really challenging. And that was really a time where I was like, I am not fit enough for this. If you fall while you're doing that, do you just tumble to your death? Like what happens if you fall? Potentially, yeah. So how like how do you block that out while you're hiking because you also do a good job of that which is i mean we had a moment that sounded similar to that when we hiked saddleback in the adirondacks but like blocking out the fact that if you fall or mess up you can get seriously injured or possibly yeah. die but still do it in an enjoyable fashion I mean, it was scary because it was pitch black dark. And but then when we went down, it didn't feel like it was that narrow. Like I don't want to give the impression that it's like really like if you go one foot off, one foot right. But like if you were to like get a little lost and take a few steps the wrong way, it felt like you could potentially fall to your death. But like it's very steep. So like if you were to fall on your on your side, 
you probably will roll down and like it's ash so it's not like but they are like some rocks speaking out of stuff so you could like really hurt yourself um but it did feel scary especially because again i was young and dumb and didn't even think oh i should pack a flashlight what age was this i was 22 i think okay um or 23 something around that but anyway i maybe yeah maybe 23 i think yeah we'll say 23 um and i didn't have a torchlight luckily someone really kind me lend me one being like i've got a second you had one a headlamp yeah i didn't have a headlamp so you i was didn't have a headlamp. i didn't have a headlamp so what was your plan i was pitch black? i was kind of following people that did have a headlamp and you were like i hope these strangers don't go too far for me because i have no of. light i mean a lot of, like they, they are guides with these people like most people like there are some people hiking on their own, but a lot of people have have guides with them. Sure, but that's in, that's an insane plan. I know. That's like not bringing food on a hike because you're like, I, know. I hope I'll catch up to someone yeah. that has crackers. I didn't say it was a smart idea. It wasn't smart. But anyway, eventually a guy kindly gave me a headlamp and I was like, I'll give it back to you when I make it to the top. See you at the summit. If you get to the top. Yeah. He didn't make it, but he did. But anyway. I don't know, we, did he? We get... Yeah, probably. But like, okay. it took me a while to get there. I Wait, was so do you not, not know if he made it? Did prob- you give it back to him? I never found him again. Oh my God. <laughs> this guy died. You took his headlamp no, and he not. fucking fell he off the side one. of the mountain. That was, that was his second one. He had a backup one. And the, and the, he had a and backup his, one. And the main one shut off and he's like, fuck, I need to find that girl. I gave my headlamp he, he goes two feet to the right to try to go ahead in line to catch you. And then... Whoosh, he had a backup one he had a backup one i just remember it was so cold it was so windy and it's like like i said it's steep there's ash you're like already kind of going backward and the wind is pushing you backward even more you're exhausted you barely slept and and it's just so cold and i was not expecting it to be that cold because it was so hot at the bottom i was just an idiot um do you remember what he was wearing no it was pitch black again i can't i i can't I could not tell you anything about him, not even where he's from. Because I was going to say, let's if he was wearing, let's say, red boots, mm-hmm. which is an aggressive move for a hike. <laughs> he's the equivalent of Green Boots Steve on Everest, that dead frozen guy that everyone walks over and they just can't remove the body. That's that's him. Dude. He, he lost his headlamp and now he's just part of that volcano. You do not understand how unprepared I was. I did not even have hiking boots. I was wearing my running shoes, which were completely destroyed. Like they were coming like in half at the end of the hike. Mm. Um, I just like threw them out at the end. They were like, use this. But anyway, I was struggling. What did you bring? I like brought a sweater, an extra shirt, something like that. So you brought something that people would bring to the park. Like if I was to go to the Prospect Park in Brooklyn, I I might bring a sweater and a bottle of water, a couple seltzers. Did you have a couple seltzers on you just in case you wanted to buzz at the top? No, no, I didn't even think about that. I I like it though. That's it aggressive. I like how you were climbing the second highest volcano in Indonesia, you said. Yeah. And you're just like... I'll just swing I by. I'll just swing by Walmart two I minutes before and just, and just do it. I didn't have hiking sticks, which oh my god! When you climb a mountain, hiking sticks are so great. Um, I I was I just came as a tourist. Did you steal another guy's hiking sticks, like the headlamp? You could no, have just taken so, it from them. Someone from my group kindly 
gave me one sometimes. Did you see them again? Yes, I did. Okay. I was going to yes, say, if you didn't see that, you might have, you might be the serial killer. I'm realizing slowly in no, this podcast. No, but you know, fun fact, a year later, I don't know if it's a fun fact, but a year later, there was an earthquake there on the same mountain I hiked. And I was like, oh, I'm so glad it wasn't there. But like, Did I, anyone couple, die? Yeah, a few people died. Jeez. And that was the vol- that's the volcano. Uh, Well, so the big scare, like there was an earthquake near it. And so the big scare was that the earthquake could cause the volcano to erupt. It didn't, but the earthquake shook the mountain. And so some people that were close to the edge when that happened fell to their death. Mm. And then everybody like ran down the mountain. The volcano did not erupt, but that was like the big scary thing was like the earthquake could cause. Could cause an eruption. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, eventually I didn't make it to the top. I cried because I didn't think I could do it. It was the most challenging hot hike trek i had ever done at the time uh i really didn't think i was gonna make it i was so happy i did and also super sad because it was super cloudy so you couldn't see shit i was like i did all that for nothing but eventually as i went down it cleared up a bit like not quite as much as i hope um but yeah it was really challenging it's like as you go down you're literally like sliding down it's like going down Mm. um, a mountain skiing but like your shoes just fill up with ash and like I said, they were like completely destroyed at the end. And so that was that was one particularly challenging physical thing I did. And that really also got me hooked on wanting Drugs to do more of, of no, just like, yeah, like challenging mountains and yeah. wanting to go higher, more technically challenging mountains and, and so forth. Well, I'm glad you made it instead of the guy with the headlamp. Oh, my God. The guy with the headlamp is fine. Nobody died that met. day. Well, not that you know of. Oh. But I'm, I'm glad... I'm glad it turned out the way that it did. And you, yeah, it definitely seems like you, in terms of another thing that you have that I would say that I don't or I don't have as much is that you get set on certain things. Like not not only are you good at navigating the sort of fear that comes with getting through certain parts of a hike or and trek, some sort of adventure, but you also set your sights on certain goals, regardless of how deadly that goal is. And mm-hmm. then you just tell yourself that you're going to do it yeah. at some point in your life. Yeah. Which I admire. But it's I feel also. This is dumb. probably psychotic of me. It's but, not dumb, but it's scary. But, and I do feel like that's an adrenaline junkie type of thing. It's like the closest you get to death, the more alive you feel. I mean, that's true. I did feel very alive skydiving when we went skydiving over the Grand Canyon. That's probably the most serene 60 seconds of my life when we were falling before the chute pulled because you literally just feel like you're floating. You're flying. I know. We should do that again. That was fun. Yeah. I'm trying to bring my brothers. I'm trying to convince them to do it. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, that I do feel like there is something about getting through a situation that could potentially kill you if something goes wrong and then get, getting out of the other side. It makes you more appreciative and grateful mm-hmm. of life. But then you do read some of the statistics or like I, so I've never had this happen to me, but I met a guy who went heliskiing in uh, yeah. Alaska. That's cool. And he went heliskiing. Everything was fine. You're going like nobody touches these mountains where they go. No. It's just 
pure powder. Havelin's race ninety percent. Yeah, ex- exactly. Like he said, he was looking like a three sixty circle. There's not a person around. It's mm-hmm. them on this mountain and a peak in Alaska, and then. Either the next day or very soon after, there was another helicopter that went up and apparently it was this billionaire guy and a bunch of his friends and they were hovering over the mountain. The billionaire guy went out and as soon as the chopper, as soon as the billionaire guy went out of the helicopter, the chopper got sucked up by a wind gust and then crashed into the mountain and the rest of them died. And it was the same place that this guy that I was talking to after we were done skiing, we were just chilling in the hot tub and he was like, yeah, it's crazy. But it didn't stop him mm-hmm. from doing that at all. But if I hiked or if I went skiing and the next day something happened where there was an earthquake mm-hmm. or an avalanche, that would that would rock me pretty hard. I would think a lot about doing something like that again. Yeah, me not so much. I know. <laughs> That's why our, our brains are are compatible yet different. Yeah. What what would you say is the scariest moment that you've had on an adventure? Again, there's been different could be it could be any type of moment. It could be I mean, the, okay. caving, hiking, was, skydiving. There was um that I kind of wanted to bring into the challenging thing and like I've grown so much since my early travels and stuff and so things that seemed terrifying at the time um now are just kind of funny. Um but one time I was um I was again in Indonesia that was the same trip and I was with my friend we had rented out the scooters um and we were going to travel from that point that we were on to Ubud <clears throat> and uh, we just Ubud is also in, in it's in Bali yeah Bali, okay. so we were like scootering around Bali which was super fun um but this was our second day in Bali and that was still like fairly early on in my um adventures traveling around the world um i at the time also like i want to emphasize that like balinese people are some of the nicest people i've ever met but again that was day two so i didn't know how people were here i didn't know how they would be with foreigners or anything and we were two girls on scooters using maps.me which is like an offline app which worked terribly there and Mm. got us lost many times and so this is our first day on the scooters. We, I, I don't want to make this story too long, but basically we like got lost, ended up at this injury ceremony, which was super cool. They invited us in. We were like, might get murdered and sacrificed or that'll be the best day ever. Turned out mm-hmm. it was great. Um, but that, that was like one of those opportunities. We had a great time. We were the only foreigner there. And it was this really epic moment. But then after that, it got dark and we knew that that was the risk. But we're willing to take it. And once again, this is our first day on the scooter. Like the weather got dark or the no, like, sacrifice like, ceremony no. turned dark? No. You're like, oh my God. They just it was cut fine. But off. also during the ceremony, we literally, like, it was such a movie moment. We could see in the back, there were like people carrying pigs attached like this to like 
mm. <laughs> a wooden stick. Yeah, like that, about to roast the That pig. was Okay, that was actually so... I'll just get a bit more into it because I just love this story Please. so much. Um, so we're invited in by... This guy just sees us clearly being lost. And he speaks English. He tells us he's normally a tour guide. Uh, but this is like this Hindu ceremony that happens once a year, last four or five days. And he invites us to his home where he can lend us clothes from his wife and mom so that we can participate in the ceremony. And I tell my friend, like, okay, so either this guy is super kind or we're about to get murdered. Um, so I was like... Or both. Or both. Some murderers I was are like, also kind. I'll start going in first and you kind of stay back in case you need to, like, run away and get help. Uh, but turns out this guy is lovely. We sit down. They offer us tea. We change into traditional... Um, Hindu is closing for the, women closing for the ceremony. We get to the ceremony. It's this incredible thing. There's people are taking this drug that make them dance and try to stab themselves with knives. How are they taking it? Was it um, a tea? Or was I think it a they're pill? drinking it. Yeah. And was it ayahuasca? I don't know what it was, but it was kind of like yeah, this herbal thing that they drink, and then they're like and they tripping, were stabbing balls. themselves. So they have these like rusted knives that they that can't cut anything but they're like stabbing themselves with it it's super weird it's good that they it's went with the rusty ones just in case yeah, they survived the cut they would get infected they're kind of like dancing and then like trying to like stab themselves with it a woman fainted at some point i think took it like it was like this surreal experience what, so where you were in the guy's house he gave you clothes and then we then went the to this temple. Then you went so there's to like the this temple. big, yeah, there's like this big temple, and it was outside. And there's like these soldier guys that then start their dance and like stabbing themselves with those knives. So was there a warm up to it? Because <clears throat> I'm like, if I'm gonna drink so, tea and stab myself with a rusty knife, I'm gonna start moving around, stretching, so, jumping jacks. Or did were you walked into the temple and they were just already in stabby mode? So what I can recall is we walked in, we were sat down, we sat down with the guide and his family his kid was there his wife and there was like some other lovely guys that explained to us a bit what was going on from what i can recall so there's like different groups enter and they bring all these offerings flowers candies all these different things beautiful mountains of of offerings and they bring them to this little um small temple um how like a shrine they mm. all bring it to this shrine then there's like a obviously not a priest but like this um religious figure that like come to everyone spray some water of them put some grains of rice on their forehead and and there's like these kind of like soldier guys are like sat on the sides cross-legged waiting for their moment and then there's like some tambour like some drums going mm. and then they kind of start their dance and like the just kind of like vibrating with the sound of the music of the drums and like start like and they've already drank the you. tea at this yeah, point yeah they have and okay. they're kind of like showing you like how they're like stabbing themselves and like that they're strong how far is it going in it's not going in it's like uh, like a really rusty knife so it's just poking their skin but it's not but they're bleeding no, they're not. Uh, they're not. So they're just no. poking themselves. Yeah, pretty okay. much. Okay, I thought they were like oh, God, no. sliding it in no, between no, no, their no, ribs sorry. and doing no. like self-sacrifice. When, when they first explained it to me, I was like, what? But no, no, no they're not bleeding. They're just kind of like dancing and poking themselves with those rusty knives. I was, I was picturing. I have pictures if you want to like include them. I can yeah, send them yeah, to send you. They're, I, they're on my Facebook. I was picturing that sort of <laughs> ceremony where people 
put these metal rods through their body and they no. hang themselves from oh, it. Oh God, no. And they just like hang from hooks like human cattle. No, 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 no. So they're just poking themselves. Meanwhile, we see like those two big pigs on sticks being like, walk back. We're like, what the hell? And anyway. And the pigs are the two women that lived in the house or these are actual pigs? These were actual pigs. Okay. This is very mean of you to say. Okay. The women in the house were lovely. I like pigs. I love bacon. Someone anyway, called me a pig, I'd be like, I'm delicious. So we're like, okay, they might actually be a sacrifice of sorts. Um, but, you know, and then the closing of the ceremony. So I I know you know this. But this is like a little funny. Well, element. it's been a while since I've heard this story. Um, so. so I'm deeply afraid of dead birds. And that probably is rooted from the fact that my first dog really loved playing with birds when I was a child. And so they would often be dead birds in the garden when I would go out to play. So I'm really, really uncomfortable with dead birds. And funnily enough, I just tell my friend this. I don't know why. And literally a few minutes later, they're closing the ceremony. And this man grabs this bird, shows it to everyone, and then pulls its head out of its body <laughs> this live bird and then pours the blood on the floor and i'm just like in utter shock and my friend is bursting out laughing from what i just told her and this is right in front of you he's like yeah. not only pulling the head off his bird when you just confess to your friend that you're deathly afraid of birds yeah. but he's almost like presenting it to you kind first, of like yeah. taunting you like yeah. see this bird i'm going to pop its head off and just start it was the most insane thing i'd ever seen and then after the ceremony was done the the guy that just in, took us in was like oh let's take a picture in front of the temple like while i'm like standing awkwardly like a foot away from that leftover bird just being like this is fine i'm not dying inside and just just took the photo so that was that was kind of like the experience that was like this incredible out out of but almost out of body experience. Like it just feels like a weird dream, uh, but I have pictures, so I know it happened. No, I'm curious because I didn't know that you could just pop a bird's head off. I thought you'd have to cut it off or do something like that. Was that it- That more strong. Was it, was it more of a twisting motion? Like you would open a can of, a jar I of pickles? I do want to talk more about Or was this. it more like a wine bottle where you just pull enough and eventually it just goes and then the head just pops up. From what off. I can recall, it was just kind of like a pop motion. Just okay, like one. so like a wine opener. Okay. Ugh. I didn't know bird's anatomy was like that. I, you could just go pop. I don't know. I feel like I kind of looked at it with one eye being like, what the hell? Uh, but yeah, that was, that was a really crazy experience. But anyway, after this incredibly incredible and weird experience, we were like, well, we now need to get to our hotel. And because all of that had happened, it was now getting dark. And we had to... How did you leave the temple? Did they just let you leave? Or did you yeah. have to like interrupt and be like, we're done? Because I would have been... If I no, saw that was, pop that was, a bird That off. was the closing part of the ceremony. They uh, closed off by doing this. And then after that, when everyone was leaving, we took a picture. We returned to his home, took off the closing that he gave us, and then said thank you when we were on our way. That's a good way to end a live podcast. I think when I do my first live podcast, I'm going <laughs> to end it by just popping the head off a pigeon. Everyone hates pigeons. They're, they they don't they don't do anything. But, but anyway, we uh, we then had to drive back, and it was dark. Um, it was getting dark really quickly, and we still had like a couple of hours to drive. And so, because everything took longer too, my phone had died. My friend had all the information 
she had the direction on the front to where we were heading. She had the name of the hostel we were staying at. Like, I knew nothing. I was following, fully mm. following. And as it got dark, it was a bit harder to follow each other. And it was kind of some highway. And my friend tended to speed up more. Eventually, at some point, I know that we're supposed to take a right. But I don't know after how many roundabouts or anything. Fast forward, I have lost my friend. My phone is dead. I have no idea where I am. I have no idea where I'm going. I am by myself in a country that I don't know anyone. This is our second day there. And I'm like, shit. I'm Mm. freaking out. Very quickly, I'm like, okay, okay. So I could be having a panic attack right now or I'm taking a deep breath and I'm trying to like think straight. And so this is not my first rodeo. I'd, I'd like lived in China before where I've had some also hickey situations. So I was like, okay, calm down, calm down, breathe. You can figure this this out. I was like, okay, I'm going to keep on driving. Uh, what? At first I was like, I'm going to like wait around here and see if my friend turned back. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to keep on driving and see if I can find a restaurant, a place where maybe they have a phone charger where mm. I can charge my phone. Then I'll tell, I'll be able to share my location with her. She'll probably think about the same thing at some point and then we can find each other. And so that's what happened. I was able to find a restaurant, plug in my phone, text her, hoping that she would come up with the same idea and what, she, did she find just me. outdrove you or what so basically she had the map and everything okay. and so she told me that we were supposed to turn and i don't know if i passed her it was dark i couldn't see anything and there's like southeast asia is the area of scooters scooters are everywhere so on the highway places they were like 30 of our scooters with us at and the same time. And you're both on scooters. Yeah, we okay. both have our own scooters. And so at some point, I just I just didn't know if I passed the point where I was supposed to turn, if she had waited for me or not. Like, I just knew that I probably passed it. I didn't know which one it was. And I was just, like, lost. And so I just, like, texted her. And eventually, she... Well, she didn't go to a place to get Wi-Fi because we didn't have SIM cards or anything. And luckily, that place also had Wi-Fi, so I could reach out to her. So she paid, like, a ridiculous amount to to just get minutes so she could text me. And she was able to, like, get to me, find each other. And then we developed a code system to, like, check in on each other. We're using, like, um, lights on our scooters being, like, you know, two would be, like, hey, just checking in. Two respond, it's okay. Three is, like, oh, I need to stop sometime soon when we need. And four mm. was, like, I need to stop right now. And we would, like, stop everyone in a while to, like, check in on directions so we wouldn't lose each other again. Um, so that turned out okay, but that was definitely one moment where I was like, and I was like also quite young and, and I was like, just like, oh my God, I'm by myself. I don't have a phone. I don't know where I am. I don't know where I'm going. Like, it's dark. It's night. So yeah, it's scary when you realize that you're completely lost in a new place and you have no sense of direction. Mm -hmm. It's uh, and being in another country where people don't speak the language, you're basically like, well, I'm fucked right now. Yeah, I didn't know how well people would speak English. Like in Bali, peop- a lot of people would speak English. Yeah. yeah, like it wasn't so much of an issue. But like when I lived in Cambodia, there were very few people who could speak English. Some people could speak French because of like the colonial history. Um, China, no, like if as, if you're not in one of the main city, like nobody speaks a word beside Mandarin or Cantonese, depending on where you are. So like it really depended. And so I didn't know at the time if people would speak English. And so that was like really scary. If I was like, my phone's dead, I can't use Google Translate or anything. Like I'm just, 
I just don't know where I am mm. and if I'm going to find something. So that was definitely uh, one of several scary moments, but that was one that really marked me too. What is, what's the next thing, the next adventure that you have on your radar that will give you scary moments like that, but you've just decided that you're going to do it anyway? Oh, like that happened after that? Happen. It could be something that you've already done, uh, or I, I meant something that you're planning, uh, on, planning doing on that you have not yet done yet, but well, it's going to potentially yeah. be scary. I mean, in the sense of like, you know, misadventures and stuff, like we are now living in Panama, which um, we're learning Spanish and like that's can be scary on its own. But I feel like si. I've, I've been I've been living and moving to so many countries that now it doesn't feel as scary. And I feel like I've gone through a bunch of crappy situation where I have gone through getting my shit stolen. Like, luckily, I've not gone through being kidnapped or anything like that. And I hope I never will be. I could arrange that. That would be a good couple's prank. I mean, I guess something that could be scary and that you're really trying to dissuade me from doing is driving back from Panama to the States. I mean, <laughs> I won't have to arrange you getting kidnapped as a prank. I'll see it on CNN News where you're holding a sign that says, please deliver yeah. $1 million to the cartel yeah. so I don't get beheaded. But I mean, I have so many, so many plans, like I have different plans. So like in terms of traveling, like that's my big next thing would be to drive through Costa Rica, Guatemala, Nicaragua, El Salvador, all that, Mexico, um, which would be amazing, but definitely have their own load of risks and challenges. And in terms of hikes and stuff, um, I've had uh, the Albanian apps on my radar for several years, but I've suffered several injuries over the past couple of years. Big sprains. I'm actually waiting on getting a surgery uh, on my right ankle and potentially need the left one too. So uh, I've had two, um, two bad injuries from climbing, from bouldering. So I'm still uh, needing to work on that. But one big one was to do 200 kilometers through the Albanian Alps, do a rotation that would uh, What's, that's like five miles. Uh, well, 200 kilometers is like 120 miles, oh, I okay. think. Um, and that's through Albania, Kosovo, um, and the other one. But anyway, so that's one. And I also want to start training um, to to summit much higher peaks, including Aconcagua, which is, I don't know when exactly that's going to happen, but. It's a big one that I want to do. So nothing exciting, really. Just kind of all like walk in the park yeah. things that you want to do. I'd love also to get back to kayaking. So I haven't done a big kayaking trip since the one I did in France a few years ago um, for four days. And I did, I think it was about 150 kilometers, which was also super challenging physically. And literally the second day I couldn't move my arms. They were in so much pain. Um, but that was really fun. And so I, I kind of want to take that to more challenging places. I'd love to do that maybe in the Arctic Sea or maybe along the Amazon at some point too. So, so yeah, nothing, nothing really crazy. So yeah, you, you have this thing and I, and I feel like we do end up finding a level of compatibility in the middle yeah. eventually, but you have this thing where. You just go, all right, I want to spend six months in the Amazon and 
when it comes towards moving towards uncontacted tribes that's you know why not let's just do it they'll probably kill us but also you know it might be a good time we might go to a ceremony yeah. where they just pop a snake's head off yeah and then start throwing the body around spraying blood on people like a lasso mm-hmm. and same thing with with mexico we both have completely different views on driving through mexico where i've spoken to people that have that work with the DEA and they know a lot about the cartel movement down there and it's always changing. There's 30 different cartels and they're constantly changing territories and powers. So there's never really a clearly defined point Mm -hmm. that's safe to drive through the entire country. And you're just like, uh, like let's, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll kind of, once we're there, we'll, we'll feel it out. And I, and I feel like both ends of the spectrum have their flaws where I shouldn't, I shouldn't let the fear of the cartel prevent me from not visiting a country, which I'm not afraid to go to Mexico. I'm just against driving through the entire country of Mexico. But then also you shouldn't go into a dangerous situation without any planning at all. Like going into the Amazon where you can get killed by fucking bacteria in a river there. Exactly. There's like like dick. There's literally dick exploding bacteria in the amazon that gets inside your private parts and fucking explodes if anything i think putting yourself in dangerous situation with preparation can be safer than your everyday life like when i look at like all my injuries or when something bad happened to me 90 percent of the time it's doing something dumb it's it's never when i'm doing something that i knew was high risk because i'm mentally extremely careful because i know it's high risk but if i'm like walking in the street then i'm probably gonna easily break my ankle walking into a hole rather than when i'm climbing a mountain Mm. Um, and like my bouldering injuries that i've referred to it's it's like it is the risk with bouldering i have very flexibility and weak ankles and i took jumps that i landed wrong but i've also climbed with rope really high um walls and nothing happened and yes you do have a higher risk like if the rope breaks uh probably your dumb thing i did was when i went climbing in egypt and i was checking out the ropes and i was like this doesn't look super strong yeah I, rem- old. I, I remember I, I think that was either one of the days where i had to work or i was going free diving it was like part of my free diving course I know, that was actually kind of scary because i was going into the desert by myself with a dude that I'd never met before that was going to be my climbing guy. It was just me and that dude. He had pretty old, rusty ropes. I was like, yep, this is this is it. This is how I die. And I still yeah. went. And you were looking at me being like... My, my I mean, we, we talked about it on, on the last podcast we did, but the it's absurd how lax the regulations are for equipment and tours once you go into other countries. I mean, it depends. Like, there's like, no way those ropes would pass a regulation test no, in America to use for climbing. No, and honestly, like, yeah, maybe I was a bit... I mean, I didn't climb that high. Like, I didn't... The walls I did with this guy were not high enough for how me high? to... <laughs> High like, enough to be like high break to, your leg or get yeah. paralyzed if you landed on your neck or something. Okay, fair, fair. I guess that's one, but like yeah. not not high. Like, see the flies going on you again. I it know, senses the they death. Are you now. escaped the death with the ropes. I know they are now, but I also feel like um, maybe this is a talk for 
a neuroscience podcast, but we can dive I, into both. I put on my PhD hat, my podcast I definitely, hat. You know? I definitely feel like for me, at least there is a link between challenging, especially physically challenging and memory where I, I don't know if it is because I do a lot of different things, but I often feel like I don't remember as well certain things that I've done as I wish I did, especially in my childhood or as a teenager. And the things, even when I look back on like my time living in China, like the things I remember most are when I was physically challenged, like mountains I've climbed and all that. And so maybe part of me is also wanting to do this, not only to feel like, I'm alive and accomplished, but also so that this really sticks with me as something I've done. And and I feel like when it's something, when you do something hard, you you really get this imprinted in in your memory. So your drive for relentless adventure is a way to mark your past with more profound and deeper memories thing thing like not just having a general idea of i was in the bahamas for mm-hmm. three days but if you ask me 30 years from now what we did i won't be able to tell you yeah you, you want stories that will be imprinted on your psyche and for you the level of physical danger the level of physical uh sort of uncertainty is a way to make sure that that gets marked as a memory i don't think i'm doing it for that reason i think that's the perk of doing it subconsciously maybe subconsciously a little bit i just know that and you also are obsessed with photography that you never share i know and that's also a way to capture memory so i do think there is a through line of you do have some sort of fear of not having things to look back on when you get older definitely i definitely fear memory loss which is understandable um but i think I'm mostly doing this because, well, like, especially like the more adventure part of things, because it is thrilling and, and I feel like it's, you know how people say like you get the travel bug or like the adventure bug. And I feel like it's You really have the death bug. Kind of. But like, <laughs> I feel that not only when I do these things, it makes me feel more alive, but I feel like when I'm not doing them, I'm, I'm like in stagnation and I'm just waiting for the next time I get to do something yeah. that that's really shaking me up that makes sense i think that i i don't have the same i I don't have the same process when it comes to the drive to capture memories with you you love the photography also the the physical i do think there's probably something there in terms of a general phenomenon amongst the public where people want to do challenging things, whether it's physically or psychologically mm-hmm. or a combination of both in order to feel like they're living more in order yeah. to feel like you like go cage diving with sh- great white sharks and you'll be able to recount every single second of that experience decades after because mm-hmm. the adrenaline yeah. imprints it on your mind. Yeah. So I, I do feel like I also have that, but the podcasting in a way, I think I do have, a fear of not just losing memories of things that I've done when I'm older, but I want there to be some sort of record behind where for myself and actually not not myself, because I I don't listen to my own podcast unless I have to edit them, but maybe for other people or putting something together 
to kind of give me glances of what I did throughout my life. Mm-hmm. I think podcasting is a part of that where I have a fear of will I will I glitch out on parts of the journey that I wish I had something recorded where you just kind of get old and your life becomes like you're you're, I feel like when the older you get the more your life is kind of just trying to hold sand in the palm of your hand where like the harder you squeeze the more it just funnels out of your hand whereas adventure and podcasting photography those are ways to make it more solid where you're not going you'll always have something there you know, unless the fucking power grid goes offline, that there will yeah. be a recording of that. And I also feel like, you know, the world is such an incredible place that, you know, like being able to experience different cultures and meet people that have different stories and were brought up differently and, and you know, just um, coming across wildlife that if you didn't go deep enough into, you know, the rainforest or in certain mountains like you get to experience things that you need to get out there to see and it's just a shame to miss out on the whole beauty especially as our world is burning down you know the yeah i don't like they are already and i'm so saddened by this there are already places that no longer exist because of climate change. There are certain things that we can no longer... Are they places that people really wanted to visit anyway? Like, what's a yes. place where you're like, it's gone, but well, there is I a wish list. I was able to go. There is a list of places that you can no longer but see. But you would know, like, if Paris was gone, people would be like, oh my God, I never saw the Eiffel Tower. What? What's a place that's gone no, where I'm you're thinking, like, I had to no, see it? No, like natural places, like natural kind of like wonders where it was like extremely beauty. Well, for instance, like like glaciers, like, you know, like the Icelandic people have to had to bury a glacier recently. So there's like this beautiful glacier. What do you mean that the bury Well, they didn't bury it, obviously, but like the glacier is no longer considered a glacier because I guess there's no ice on it and so this is no longer a glacier but is that like the Pluto thing where they're like based on a technicality it's not a planet anymore but it's still there like it's still yeah but like there are things that like you can't see like there is like melted ice in places where they are these like magnificent glaciers that you can no longer see they have places there was like this incredible lake and it's got is dried out now and like I don't know exactly. It, it, if you look at like deforestation, there are like places that were of incredible beauty that either we directly destroyed or has been destroyed by our presence being there and like climate change and all this. And th- there's like a list online where we can look up, but like there, there's definitely places that are like disappearing. And yeah, so not just for our own memory but also like to to get to experience places that maybe the next generation won't be able to well there there are some places that should disappear that no one would care about so maybe instead of getting rid of climate change and global disasters we should figure out a way to channel them into the parts of the earth that no one cares about while keeping intact the rest of them and we can move people out of those places like Plainview, like Long Island, the the uh, town the town that I grew up in. If my parents could move somewhere else, like if we oh, let's say we were out in Lake Tahoe and we're living out there, my parents move out there, and someone was like, "Do you want to go back to Plainview, Long Island?" I would say no. Why? I like if it was underwater, I'd be like, "There's nothing 
special. Long Island is it does have some you know, the beaches are great and the Well you know, the delis, okay. delicatessens. I do love delicatessens. And for some reason, places around the country don't have delis. Like you can't just walk into a place and get a nice fat sandwich unless you go mm-hmm. to Subway. So I do like that. Mm-hmm. But Long Island is such like a blaze, like a blank, just nothing, no culture, not not really just anything. A very white. Not area. even that. It's, it's just like it's just like there's nothing because Long Island is actually pretty diverse. You have you have different gangs you have like the ms-13s mm-hmm. you also have like the neo-nazi gang so like there's there's a bunch of you know th- th- there's the over and the underworld of people that's very diverse on long island but mm-hmm. sure it, it is there's a lot of white people but there's also just a lot of like white living where it's just like everything there's no color to mm-hmm. it. It, it there's nothing special Right. So if we could direct climate change at Long Island, New York, while saving the people that we care about, 100% bring on the monsoons, bring on the fires, bring on the tornadoes and just direct it at that place and then leave Lake Tahoe and the Rocky Mountains and Denver and all those actual places in the United States that are good to visit intact. Well, how about the people who live there? I said we, you know, take out the people we care about. There's like ten friends would like it. (laughs) Ten friends, my family. And then, you know, just like the serial killers, the the, we we're overpopulated. That's what all the environmentalists are saying. Don't have children because by the time they're eight, they'll be suffocating underwater because the world's gonna be gone by twenty forty. And don't stop having kids. So it's your fault if you're still alive. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. You're on board with that. No. Absolutely not. So what do you want to do? You want to save people? Yes, that would be good. Okay. Well, this is why we're different. You value human life. I just value going snowboarding and preserving those parts of the world. But we can find compatibility. Is this your way to tell me that you are a serial killer? I wouldn't tell you unless we were (laughs) playing a character. Unless I was in Um, character as a podcast host. And, you know, I was confessing to a crime. Mm. But I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't kill you. I, I would. I, I feel Thank like we you. we would plan things together. We would do it in a way that was fulfilling for so both. So it's either of us. you're on board or overboard. Yeah, like like Leo and Titanic. Either you know, actually no, not the opposite. Because she was on board, and there was a lot of room on that board, and she was still like, no, you can die. Mm. So. I wouldn't be like her. I, I wouldn't be Kate Winslet. I would be the opposite of her bringing us both on board, watching everyone around us perish in the cold. But with our friends and family. Mm-hmm. That's a healthy outlook, I think. Sure. But let, let's end on a positive note. Okay. You... You let's try to let's try to let's try to figure, uh, let's try to figure this out with driving through Mexico, because okay. I I do want to do it. Not be scared. Well, not 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 be scared, but I want to do it in a realistic fashion. Yes. Where okay, we're not just hoping that our car doesn't break no, down because, in the middle of nowhere. Because, okay, if there's one thing I want to 
people to take away from what I've said so far is preparedness is key in any type of dangerous situation. It's like, you know, we went to Colombia, reading about Colombia, we knew, you know, don't show your papaya. We knew that there papaya was... Papaya is private parts? No, it's like, don't show that you have money. Don't uh, like okay. show your big longings and stuff. And so you we can were, show your private parts, We part, were careful with that. Okay. Nothing happened. And ironically, you know, it's, it's often in places where everything feels safe that like crap happens. You live in New York City, which is pretty dangerous if you look at the stats on like the number of crimes that happen every single day in New York. But there's also 8 million people. So statistically, yes. that you're just going to have more crimes in places where there are but more people. But statistically, you have tons of cars driving from Mexico every single day and most of them are fine. Yes, but, but the, it's, the different, thing, it's okay. different driving yes. all the way through a country that is pretty cartel controlled okay. than driving through the United States. I just met someone that literally hitchhiked through Mexico, which arguably is 10 times more dangerous than driving Where did your he start car. again? I think in the US. Did, was he American? I mean, the man freaking, no, he's from Austria, and the man freaking hitchhiked, find a boat to hitchhike on to cross the Atlantic, which is insane and amazing. So he went through uh, through Mexico or sailed no, around No, he, he went Mexico. through Mexico. He, he went across all of Central America to Panama, hitchhiking essentially and so if he and his take and he just did this and his take was like it's not that dangerous the fact is in mexico you have areas that control bar cartels you have areas that are dangerous and you have um i forgot how they're called but there's this group um that want to get independence from mexico that also an area that you shouldn't hang out at but this is like mappable people if you like, you might not be able to plan a perfect route. Like you should have an idea where you're going. You should be aware that there are risks and there are things that you can do about it. Like not drive at night, have a minimum, like make sure, make sure your car is functional. Like get it checked out by a mechanic before you start your road trip and have a little bit of knowledge about that. Always make sure that your tank is nowhere less than half full and try to drive, like finish driving hours before night hits. So like, and using toll road areas. And like there are ways to like be as safe as possible. And if you follow these rules, you are extremely unlikely to have shit happen to you. I'm sure those crazy stories you told me with guys being beheaded, they they went somewhere they were not supposed to go. Yeah, one foot off the resort property. The cartel was waiting in a circle. They were holding hands, okay. singing. Okay, that sounds right. Trying to attract <laughs> tourists, saying, singing Kumbaya. In Spanish, kumbaya, malor, kumbaya. But and then a tourist in the resort heard the cartel singing. They lured him in with their sexy voices. Boom, beheaded. So National you're saying TV. that they are land mermaids? Lermaids, yeah. Lermaids, yeah, that sounds So right. th this, is, this is my inside knowledge because I talk to super cool people who have worked with people in the DEA and have knowledge in Mexico, from what this person tells me, the territories in Mexico are constantly changing because so much of Mexico yes. is at war. So the map that you made on Tuesday will not be the map that is present in Mexico on Wednesday. But these you know what are, that means? These things are changing all the time and you don't necessarily even find out if you're driving through a town that is now overrun by the cartel 
and looking for people that look like us to kidnap and here's, hold here's, for ransom. Here's the way you should see it. Rather than be like, I have friends in the DEA that are telling me that we should be scared. You should see it as, we have friends in the DEA that can let us know in real time where not to go. But the thing, he's saying he doesn't, not even he knows. Because it's changing constantly. There's like 30 different territories yeah, the, in Mexico. Yeah, but like you have a way to shimmy your way around that. And like the fact is that like actually people that you are- can't kidna- shimmy out of people, a beheading. Pe- people that are getting kidnapped are probably not getting kidnapped by the cartels because the cartels, it would ruin their business to do that. So they're like, mm, they have contacts in America and stuff too. So like it's probably not the cartels that are doing that. It's probably other communities. And- no, it's Nowhere a, it's is ever fully safe. And I don't think you need to, like, I've heard. Have you ever been to Six Flags? Yes. That's pretty safe. I mean, people is do get beheaded people, every once in a while on roller yes, coasters. Yes, exactly. Roller coasters are actually pretty dangerous. You All should, right, you convince me. Let's let's do it. Let's, I'll, I'll say I am open to driving through part of Mexico for more than a week now but i'm not driving through the entire country of mexico because i still view that as extremely dangerous fine i'll do it by myself which is even safer oh if you make it yeah we'll see but i'm sleeping away from the cartel side of the car sounds good because everyone knows that they always come in on the passenger side i'm sleeping on the driver's side yeah they're they're all lefties so they when they come Uh, in to stab you they go around that passenger side of the car so i'll sleep by the driver's side i'll hear the screaming and the the you know like the gurgling like and then i'll wake up and then i'll be able to protect whatever part of you is left i can promise you that if we're doing it it won't be a dumb spontaneous thing we'll uh look into it we'll come it's funny how we talk every time we talk about mexico the flies just start eating our decomposing flesh it's like a signal of what's to come it's It's like we're gonna end up in the mexican soil with flies just eating our bodies it's like predicting the future also i love how you're like let's end on a positive note so the cartels are gonna behead us is where we're heading and the flies are eating our um decomposing flesh that's pretty positive all right fine let's actually end on a positive note there we we talked about crocodiles before on we the did. last episode actually that was about an hour that you talked about crocodiles. yeah exactly <laughs> because i know how to lead a podcast so three <laughs> this is a story about three crocodiles that's positive three oh god three co- this is the title of the story from new york post three crocodiles could have easily devoured a stray dog in the river they pushed it to safety instead oh When a young dog in India sought refuge in a river while being chased by a pack of feral animals, it was immediately surrounded by three crocodiles. They were so close that they could have easily devoured it, experts say. But when their snouts came in contact with the dog, they helped save its life instead. The situation was described in a new report published in the Journal of Threatened Threatened Taxa by scientists who have spent years studying marsh crocodiles, otherwise known as muggers. That sounds right. Crocodiles are muggers based on the mm-hmm. ones that uh, based on the, the videos of crocodiles that, that they've seen. They steal your life. But apparently these ones uh, did not steal the dog's life. OK, so marsh right. crocodiles are otherwise known as n- muggers in India. Mm. Adult male muggers. Uh, this article is getting pretty uh, racial. 
Adult male muggers can get up to 18 feet long and weigh up to 1,000 pounds, according to the Wildlife Institute of India. But according to researchers, that massive size doesn't always mean that they're aggressive. They described an instance in which a young dog was being chased by a pack of feral dogs and ended up trying to escape in the Savitri River. At the time, three adult muggers were clearly seen floating close by in the water and their attention was drawn to the animal. But rather than making the dog their next prey, two of the three crocodiles displayed displayed more docile behavior than expected instead of eating the young animal the crocodiles guided it away from the pack of dogs who were waiting for it on the riverbank so is there such a thing as cross species empathy do you do you think that these crocodiles genuinely felt emotions for this dog that was clearly trying to escape this pack of feral dogs that were attacking it and helped it move to the other side of the river or do you think this was more like uh we'll test it out maybe the crocodiles weren't as hungry so maybe to people looking and they kind of were pushing it but really they were just kind of like prodding it almost like a shark or something where they're just like seeing what it is and then they just go off. But it looked like they were pushing the dog across the river. I definitely think that animals are able to be empathetic. Like there's been example. Like I remember reading. That was with a human. But I remember reading um, this story of this woman who was swimming with this. I don't know if it was a whale or a dolphin. But she was swimming with this big marine mammal. And... And I mean, next to it. And then eventually the mammal started pushing her, blah, started pushing her away. And she was very confused what was going on. And then she saw that there was like a white shark that was getting like, uh, again, maybe it wasn't all a white shark. It was a shark. But basically this animal was like you trying to. You said a lot of white things on this podcast. Yeah. Um, was pushing her away, like trying to protect her. And there's been several instances. I mean, you're talking about crocodiles. Have you seen I know you have because I've been showing them to you. The man eaters. Capybaras riding oh, crocodiles is the most wholesome thing ever. And you see capybaras using crocodile as like a lift across the river. And it's amazing. I think that the crocodiles are doing the long term play that guys do when they befriend girls that we talked about. I think. Like some like there are a bunch of guys that will just become friends with girls they're attracted to in hopes that they'll eventually have a weak moment. And then the guy that's friends with her will just swoop in and say, oh, I'm here. I'm your shoulder to cry on. You know, I know we're friends, but let's let's hook up. I think the crocodile is doing that. I think the crocodile is doing that to the capybara where they go, "Okay, I'm going to be friends with the capybara. But as soon as it has a weak moment, as soon as it falls off my back boom i'm just gonna devour it and use it and leave it on the side of the road i think i think that for animal there are other animals that are food or veggies are food depending on whether they're herbivores or carnivores and then there are other animals or even humans this is why like a lot like when we were with crocodiles uh in that cave they didn't attack us because we are not food so it's like most of those animals, same with bears. We're not food for bears. We do carry food. So like the only reason an, an animal like that would attack a human or like a big other animal like a dog would be if 
they carry food, if they are an, a danger to themselves or a danger to their small ones but, or in their territory. But there are man-eating crocodiles in the Nile. They literally eat people. Okay, but like I feel like Nile crocodile are like their own own. They have their own box of there, things. They're like there's just a photo of a crocodile. It was like in Florida of a crocodile look, carrying a woman in its in mouth. I don't know who hurt them Nile crocodiles, but they have a vendetta against human, and that's that's the Nile crocodile deal. That does not account for other crocodiles. They named it. But in it's, didn't they name it like Jeffrey yeah. in the article? It was like Jeffrey's well, killed three hundred people. Two hundred. Two hundred. Allegedly. Like the cartel. Anyway. Except for Marcus or Jeffrey the crocodile, the Nile crocodile. The Nile crocodiles are like their own thing. Also, that might be because so many Egyptians use them as like take the small ones and take them as pets. So they're like, they're like, oh, it's revenge time, baby. But most animals. That's what it thinks in its head. But most animals, especially an animal that's like in an area where it can thrive, where there's enough. Like, and that's another thing is like an animal could be that is not normally dangerous to humans or dogs could be dangerous if they are lacking food. And that, that brings us back to us destroying habitats and therefore destroying their food provisions and therefore them having to go outside of what they're usually eating or where they're usually found. But if an animal like a crocodile is in a good environment where there's tons of food for them, they are happy, cheapy crocodiles they have no reason to attack a dog because they don't eat dogs. Like they don't have a reason to attack a human because some are more aggressive than others and that's why they might. But like the crocodiles that we saw in that cave, for instance, if you don't if you do not do anything for a small one, they don't feel like their small ones are at risk or you're not pissing it off, they don't care. They're not going to eat you because they don't eat. You, you kinds, you know? So, so do you think this was a genuine example of cross-species empathy from a crocodile to a dog Possibly, that was trying to escape yeah. where it genuinely felt bad and helped it across the river? But if it was hungry, let's be real, that dog would be long Yeah, gone. but like that's the thing. is like ultimately they were not interested in eating it. And it's like what we were reading when we were like, oh my God, capybaras and crocodiles are best friends. Like what the hell? And, and I think that was like for one, it's like they're kind of like too big to eat them so they don't really care they're like i mean i'm sure if they were starving and it same thing as off you know if, if we're like starving at some point you're gonna look like a nice piece of chicken to me i mean i've seen some hungry people do some horrific things i've myself you have like first class intermittent seen in, intermittent fasting brings out the monster inside of me you don't want to be around me during a 36 hour fast. I think I, I could go around 24 to 30 hours, but like once it gets into this 36 to 48 hour range, I'll take someone out. Speaking of starving, is it lunchtime? Yeah, well, we're two hours and five minutes in, so we're about halfway through right now. Okay, so good. I'm, I'm thinking, you know. I don't know, nothing else. This has been a wonderful life. podcast. Uh, Thank you for having I, me on. I do think this is a good example of the the cross-species empathy, though. Just like to yeah. put a cap on that, that the crocodiles seem to have in a rare moment, which does not mean that cartels will empathize with us in Mexico when they have the option to behead us for millions of dollars. Actually, I don't know if my parents would pay that. Probably maybe like 20000 I don't know. It depends. But, but we can this, always this tell them, a- I'm only a fluffy dog. The cartel? I'll tell the cartel, I'm just a fluffy dog. Take pity on me. You're, you can try that. <laughs>
I'll be the the racing dog sprinting in the You'll opposite direction. You'll be hiding in the back of the car, yeah. being like, "I'm just a blanket." Yeah. So you, I I do think that was a positive note that we saw three crocodiles helping a dog across the river, just like that. if we encounter cartel members. Hopefully we catch them on a on a non-hungry day. Hopefully they're well fed in yeah. tourist blood from days prior where they go, you know what? We have enough money. Maybe we have enough people. Let's just give them lunch and we'll give them a place to stay. Oh, you know, the good- what's record what's start a cartel podcast? I'll produce their podcast and I'll get us out of it. I'll give them another revenue stream that's legal. Or maybe the takeaway is let's stop destroying animals' habitats and keep them well-fed and happy and and then we'll be safe. Here's an idea. What if we knock down half of the Amazon to build Four Seasons hotels, but we call it a Fabitat? Like fab, fabulous, like a bougie Amazon. No, no, I get it. I get it. What are your thoughts? A Fabitat? I think that's a good marketing scheme. The world doesn't have to be not fabulous as it's burning to a crisp and getting destroyed we could still be fab you can be fab far away from the amazon too all right well what will be compatible i think we're far away right now but as we said we usually find a meeting in the middle where it doesn't have to be a full four seasons it could just be a, a bunch of a airbnbs little, a little hot bunch of airbnbs that we rent at no, sure like still mansions we can't nope Mm-hmm. Well, we can make sustainable you don't houses. have to come to my amazon mansion that's fine we'll do different things i'll live in the Am- we're gonna reverse i'll live in the amazon for six months maybe six years and then you can come flying and visit that me. that sounds great i'll definitely come yeah. visit you but this this has been a wonderful episode i always enjoy talking to you good <laughs> and this sounds like i am saying it sarcastically but i do enjoy talking to you because i respect your opinion and i love you very much and i admire your adventurous spirit and this is what i get for trying to be serious i get a (laughs) poop sound or for some reason on netflix every time you go like this they do blows raspberry i hate it this makes me cringe so much i don't know where this is from maybe maybe your listeners know and they can let us know but yeah if you're listening to this why is this sound called a raspberry blowing a raspberry who wants to blow a raspberry and by the way i i blew a guy named raspberry but that was a completely <laughs> different thing I, I was in mexico actually but that that was back in 2010 it was it was a while while before we met and that's and that's also why i did that I, I wanted to imprint a memory with a guy that i had a great day with but i was afraid that because i hadn't done something adventurous i wouldn't remember it 30 years from now so I just blew them. And that's also another reason to be promiscuous. If you're out there, you're single, you're in an open relationship, have more random sex because that is an imprint on your mind with memories. Random sex is like the photography of life. And so if you if if someone's inside you, you're going to remember them, which is why life is we're here in the first place. So that is that's the takeaway i think from this okay. this podcast and on that note i'm gonna go make lunch before i eat a crocodile all right sounds good <laughs> thank you guys for listening to this episode if you would like more uh podcasts uh especially on the weeks where we're going on adventures and i'm not releasing episodes go to com. 
where I have over 40 hours of bonus episodes and I talk about a lot of shit with other guests and do solo episodes on various topics that I talk about uh, on the Auxoro podcast, a lot of things, similar subjects. So if you want bonus episodes, go to auxoro.supercast.com and support the podcast, support an independently produced show and my my undying uh, desire to follow my curiosity no matter where it leads or how unprofitable it is to talk about some of the things that I put on YouTube and get demonetized. I promise to always still do that on Supercast. So thank you very much. This has been an absolute blast and talk to you next time. <laughs>